Ask the Expert. Uh, today we have uh, Bobby Joe Webb-Robertson, PhD, and Rashid Frohnert, MD, PhD, to join us to discuss their, um, their work and their incredible new paper, Integration of Infant Metabolite, Genetic and Islet Autoimmunity Signatures to Predict Type 1 Diabetes by Six Years of Age. That would, this is really going to be um, an incredible new uh, addition to the knowledge base. It came out in April 25th, 2022 in J Clinical um, Endocrinology Metabolism. And the paper highlights the power of collaborative effort in the type one diabetes research community, something uh, sugar science champions. Um, so let's just do a quick background. Um, Dr. Webb Robertson earned her PhD from Rensselaer. Um, she specialized in the development of statistical models for protein homology modeling. And she joined PNNL um, in 2002, where she focused on development of methods for improving downstream analytics for mass spectrometry uh, divide proteomic metabolomic and lipidomic data for the purposes of improving biomarker discovery. So she's perfectly poised to um, enter the T1D realm here. In the past decade, she shifted her work to a machine learning driven feature extraction focused on biomarker discovery from complex and heterogeneous data in the field of type one diabetes. She's working on machine learning discovery efforts from multiple birth cohorts, such as Teddy, um, the environmental uh, determinants of diabetes in the young, and DAISY, the diabetes autoimmunity study in the young, and as well as helping to design and guide the data science needs for the network for pancreatic organ donors and diabetes, which is NPOD. Her full publication list can be found in Google Scholar. Welcome. And Dr. Uh, Brigitte Fronert, MD-PhD. She's an associate professor at Ann uh, Schutz Campus School of Medicine. Um, in Colorado, and her recent interest is uh, understanding the environmental factors which contribute to development of islet autoimmunity and progression to type 1 diabetes with the ultimate goal of preventing type 1 diabetes in the future. In 2014, she uh, joined investigators on two large epidemiological studies, DAISY, which I uh, alluded to before, and Teddy, and uh, following over, uh, Teddy actually followed over uh, 8,500 children Daisy looked at 2,500 high-risk children um, and with a background in molecular biology and biochemistry, she's interested in the use and integration of omics data, which omics is uh, considered genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, et cetera, to generate new insights in the disease process. So welcome, um, Drs. Uh, Webb Robertson and Frohnert, and um, I'm very interested in um, hearing about your work. All right, I will uh, go ahead and share our presentation here. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for that introduction. So I will not reintroduce myself or, or Briggs, my co-presenter here. I did wanna start with the sort of acknowledgement slide without reading everybody's name. Um, this work really has been a, a very large multi-institutional and interdisciplinary collaboration, um, including the Barbara Davis Center in Colorado, University of South Florida, Virginia, Helmholtz, and PNNL, or ICIT. Um, a lot of this work was funded by Teddy in the NIH. And here's a, a specific link to the paper we're going to talk about today. But I actually thought what I would do is start with an, an introduction to um, sort of the field of artificial intelligence, because we do get a lot of questions about, you know, what is AI, what is ML, what is deep learning, all of these things. So um, I like to put it in this context. AI is really the, the really big field that includes everything. 
not just the algorithms to make prediction, but the robotics to build, you know, the sensors and the robotics and all the pieces that actually make an AI function. Machine learning are those actual learning algorithms, and they can be anything from simple rule-based algorithms to statistical learning methods, which is what we actually employ in this talk. And then deep learning is actually a subset of machine learning, works very well in certain situations. AlphaFold, for those on the call who promote AlphaFold, really put deep learning in the bioinformatics uh, super category but it, it works in very specific scenarios, but it's built on very deep neural nets. For the statistical learning methods that we use, you know, there's some strengths, but there's also some challenges. Um, you know, the strengths are the multidimensional data that they can manage, looking at multivariate signatures, but there's also some challenge that it requires labeled data. In many cases, a lot of labeled data which um, you know can make interpretation sometimes hard if you're doing it with small amounts of data. Over training, so you can get propagation of errors, so you could train an algorithm. And if it's actually picking up the wrong things, as you add more things, it can continue to do that and propagate that error. Then depending on the method, it can take a lot of computational res resources or be hard to interpret. So you know we gotta always take, uh, we pick the best method that we think for the problem we have in hand. And sometimes that changes over time, but um, that's really the category of work that we're talking about here in terms of machine learning. And can I just um, quickly ask, you know, um, how how old is AI ML uh, that sort of application? So in AI the healthcare ML, field. Yeah, it's actually been used for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Early on, there were a lot of expert-based systems that were built that were rule-based. And they still were considered machine learning, right? If patient A has blood pressure over this value and this marker over this value, then prescribe this, right? That's still making a prediction of what's the right treatment for that patient, just based on simple rules. So um, it's been used for decades, but in the sort of this statistical learning framework, mm -hmm. not quite so long, at least for type one diabetes, so um, I actually went to PubMed and I did the most basic of searches, machine learning, type one diabetes. And that's what this graph is showing is that, you know, back in 2015, there were like maybe three papers published that included both of those terms. Yeah. And in 2021, it was like 73. So that's a huge dramatic increase. Yes. And it's much more than that, right? Because a lot of people don't put the, the term machine learning in their title but are still doing that as part of their paper. So I think you can really see the dramatic growth in really the last three to four years of um, the application of machine learning. In the field of type one diabetes, I'm not gonna talk about these three applications, but what I wanted to show by just putting these three up there and you can look at the titles is that the ways people are using it is very diverse. Everything from image analysis to biomarkers, which is what we do, but for different technologies such as single cell or looking more at clinical measurements like glucose monitoring and trying to predict what's the, the next measurement that's gonna come up for this patient so you can get ahead of specific issues. So um, it's being used very heavily right now in the field of type one diabetes and in a lot of different application spaces. So what I'm gonna talk about today is just one of those application spaces. But um, I think this does show that, you know, there, despite the caveats to machine learning, it's, it's come a long way and it can do a lot of good.
Yeah, no, it, it certainly is getting more popular and that's great because as more people use these tools, they can, you know, go back into, even as, as we're going to see, go back into pre-existing data sets and really pull new things out. Mm -hmm. I agree. So here's an example. Neither of my two titles would be in that PubMed search because neither of them use the term machine learning. Hmm. But um, I did want to point out, we're talking about this paper down here, and I don't have my laser pointer on, but I can put it on. Uh, we're talking about this paper down here, the integration of infant metabolite genetic and I let autoimmune signatures for type one diabetes, but we've had two prior publications looking at different endpoints, but with a, a similar theme. So what um, our sort of theme in machine learning has been in this sort of collective group working together has been, how do we sort of integrate traditional risk and genetic biomarkers, which are actually a little bit simpler because they don't change dynamically over time with dynamic functional biomarkers like proteins and metabolites to improve the prediction of specific endpoints of type one diabetes. Um, before we get into sort of the results, I wanna point out one thing about biomarkers is they can be measured in lots of different levels. And when we do a lot of the biomarker work that we talk about in our paper, they go all the way from discovery phase to validation phase. But most of our work is way down here in the discovery phase where you're measuring as many things as you possibly can, hundreds or thousands of proteins, metabolites, and then you're trying to mine that to find what are your best candidates to move on to verification. Um, we have verification data now in, um, in Teddy, although it's not presented in this paper. And then ultimately the goal is to validate this, right? So that you have something you can actually put on an assay and help people with. But we're still way down here. So we're trying to use machine learning to learn something about um, the patients and what might actually be useful in the clinic as predictors. And I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail, but this is sort of our basic approach. Uh, we don't force each, we don't put all data together into one specific machine learning algorithm. We let the data choose, set up some sort of fusion, then feature selection. Then the evaluation piece is important because for our particular application, we're not only interested in accuracy, we're interested in what features are driving the prediction so that then maybe we can move on to those other phases of the uh, biomarker identification to build more predictive models that will work in a larger population. What's the timeline for that process? Um, so for Teddy, for example, going from discovery to verification data was like five years, mm. but it was an extremely large, large number of samples. Yeah. But it can be done in a few years, usually, if you have really dedicated resources. Teddy was 8,500 children, right? Yeah, we didn't analyze all 8,500, but we did analyze um, a lot a lot of samples, with, mm -hmm. for example, proteomics. But every data type for Teddy is at a different phase. And every, so I'm giving you that timeline for proteomics. It's shorter for metabolomics. Yeah. Um, so it depends on what you're measuring. Right. So for Teddy, for this specific prediction that we were doing in this paper, will the child progress to type 1 diabetes by age six? We had uh, 73 kids that had and 582 who did not. 
And these kids, this is sort of the flow chart going from the full set of Teddy. How do we get down to 655? We wanted complete data for HLA, autoantibodies, dietary, mm-hmm. um, growth information, GRS, as well as metabolomics at these three early age time points, three, six, and nine months. Because we wanted to know, could we predict it from you know, the measurements we have on these kids when they're very, very young? And we use the method I've referred to before, this repeated optimization for feature interpretation approach. And when you run machine learning, um, I added this to sort of give you a sense of what happens is you put in all this data and you crunch it through your algorithm, but then for every child, you get an individual prediction. Hmm. So, um, you know, these are my T1D. It may say, we believe that this child will have T1D by the age of six, given their information, with a probability of 0.97 or 0.82. And this might be a false positive, right? Uh, 0.71. So you don't only just get a yes, no, you get a degree of how likely, um, the likelihood that a child will progress to whatever endpoint you put into the machine learning, given the data that you have for that child. Mm-hmm. And this is where I'm gonna hand it over to Briggs to uh, talk about the results. And Briggs, just tell me next slide, and uh, we'll go from there. Great. Um, so here on the right, uh, we have the features that were selected in the analysis that Bobby Joe just described. Um, and for each, um, the bars along the right recommend um, represent feature importance. So basically, in the iterative process of selecting features that predict the outcome, the higher the number for feature importance importance basically tells you the number of times that that feature was selected in the, um, in the algorithm. So for instance, at the very top, um, in, the, in the very top, so if you can click once, Bobby Joe, the arrows will pop up. Um, oh, sorry. Oh, there we go, cool. Um, so these are in the, the um, brown bars are features that were selected at least 50%, 50% or more of the time. And so in that top cohort of the most highly selected features, you see the very number one is islet autoantibody positive. So basically at nine months, if you have a positive islet autoantibody, you are highly likely to go on to develop type one diabetes. And that is not surprising from what we know. Some other highly selected um, are features that we um, also know from established uh, work that are high risk uh, factors, such as the HLA um, DR34, genotype, which is, um, which is uh, the highest risk HLA type. And then the next one right underneath it is GRS. So that's the genetic risk score. So that is a risk score that has been developed in other populations and refined in Teddy, um, looking at multiple SNPs, um, including HLA, um, and using those um, to uh, generate a number that gives you a prediction of, of likelihood of developing type 1. Um, we also have cow's milk formula and gestational age. So those are um, previously identified um, risk factors. And then you press the button again. So the starred factors are factors that um, either these metabolites or very close um, uh, related metabolite showed up on the DAISY uh, analysis that Bobby Joe showed a few slides ago. Um, in the DAISY analysis, we looked at kids who um, we had three populations, controls, kids who developed islet auto um, immunity, and then kids who developed, who progressed to type one. So there was two analyses in that study in terms of um, selecting features. One is 
risk of developing um, islet autoimmunity. And the second was um, from those who developed islet autoimmunity who developed type one. And most of these features selected come from um, the, uh, the islet autoimmunity with the exception of, uh, I think, valine, uh, which is down kind of about two thirds down the chart. Um, and then if you click the button again, so the yellow dots represent um, these are metabolites that were selected in a previous study in Teddy that looked at um, longitudinal meta, um, metabolomic profiles and selected um, metabolomic features that predicted outcome of islet autoimmunity. So I just wanted to stop a second here and, and kind of clarify. So this analysis is looking at outcome of type one. Um, Daisy looked at both autoimmunity and type one, and then the Teddy metabolomics analysis was looking at out, um, endpoint of islet autoimmunity. So a little bit different endpoints. And um, one of the interesting things is you might have different features um, that select for one part of the, the progression versus the other. Um, and so a couple of things I just wanted to point out. Um, so several metabolites could be diet, dietary based. So piperidone and ascorbic acid. So ascorbic acid is I think about the eighth from the bottom that showed up in um, both Teddy and um, metabolom metabolomics as well as Daisy. Um, vitamin C is known to inhibit insulin secretion in mice. Um, and so increased level at the earliest time points is associated with islet autoimmunity. Um, in both um, Teddy and- oh, Sorry, okay. just for the, with ascorbic acid, like how much um, over the limit is that? Okay, so what or this the, number- over is, the normal. What this number is telling us is that that, um, that continuous variable um, when put into the machine learning algorithm will be selected about 20, it looks like 22, 23% of the time mm -hmm. as a, as a important feature predicting outcome. Nice. So, and Bobby Joe can, can jump in on this, but one of the important things, it's very tempting to look at the list and then start thinking about the individual um, components. Right. But what this really is telling you is that these are ensemble um, features. And so to predict, you have them together um, in the algorithm. So if you are then gonna go back and look at just an individual feature, it's a little bit different, um, important question in terms of validation, but it is a different um, analysis then. Bobby, do yeah, you want to add no, to that? I totally get, yeah. yeah, that's very important clarification. It's like, that's, it has to be seen, um, like you said, as an ensemble. Yeah. And of course the higher it is on the list, the, the more frequently it was part of that ensemble. So mm -hmm. um, I think one of the, the, the points of kind of indicating these, these crossover um, features is just, I think that this is, um, encouraging to see that there's crossover between um, different outcomes and different studies. Uh, well, similar outcomes, but different studies um, in terms of what gets selected. Um, the other thing I wanted to highlight were um, both Teddy and Daisy um, selected um, metabolites in the branch chain amino acid pathway. So those branch chain amino acids are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. So valine was one of the ones that picked. I remember where that is on the there's valine. There it is. Uh, valine um, isoleucine. and isoleucine. So um, the branch chain, chain amino acids are intriguing. They are also um, selected in um, metabolomic um, studies of type two. Um, so um, branch chain amino acids are known to potentiate, potentiate glucose stimulated insulin secretion. So 
Um, it's sort of a cross um, disease um, signal. Um, and then some other um, features that got selected here were um, sugar metabolites. So fructose, level glucosin, glycerol alpha phosphate, and xylulose. Uh, God, I can't say mm -hmm. Um, so suggesting that kids who develop type one might have differences in their, um, carbohydrate metabolism. Interestingly, in the Daisy analysis, we picked up, um, sugars in the islet autoantibody to, um, T1D progression analysis, but not in the, um, the start to islet autoimmunity outcome. So, um, and this, of course, this analysis is going to pick up both, um, sort of steps in that, in that progression. Um, and then another thing that came up in all three analyses was the, um, gamma aminobutyric acid or GABA, um, which is known to be important in regulation of secretory function in beta cells, or at least in, in vitro. Um, also, um, GABA is produced by GAD65, which, um, is a, a target of autoimmunity. So, um, some interesting common themes between, um, different studies. So, yeah, um, very interesting that it looked, you know, you captured this snapshot of, um, you know, like early from early days, it looks like things have, are, are not quite right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good point. So both the Teddy metabolomics analysis and the Daisy, um, analysis are looking at kids who, um, of a, a broader um, spectrum of age, but this is really looking at those early time points, which is very interesting. So next slide. So moving away from looking at the individual features, now looking at how useful is this ensemble in terms of um, a screening tool. So, um, so basically along the, um, the y-axis, we have the area under the curve, and along the x-axis, we have different scenarios. So in the first scenario, none, that is uh, basically what is the area under curve for prediction of T1D outcome if you use just the data that doesn't come from a blood draw. So that is um, growth data, um, uh, demographic data. Um, and so you see that's kind of your baseline. It's not a very great prediction, but indeed there's um, some prediction there. Then the next set of, um, of box plots are if you are basing your screening on only the three month blood draw, but you're screening at um, for the reddish brown bar is three months, the black bar is six months and the golden bar is nine months. So if the screening happens at those different ages, but you only have a blood draw from three, mo three months, um, that's your area under the curve. At six months, it's really, if you're just looking at the six month um, time point, it's not much different. So a little bit, not significantly different. Um, but if you look at the nine month blood draw, now suddenly your AU, uh, AUC goes up quite a bit. And of note, that is the first age where we have islet autoantibody measurements. And so as you recall from the, from the feature selection, that was the most highly selected feature. So not surprising that piece of information really ramps up your predictive value. And then the last um, groups are basically if you use more than one blood draw information. So three and six months, three and nine months, six and nine months are all three time points. Um, and I think kind of the important thing here is that um, three and nine months um, seems to be significantly better than um, just the nine months. Um, whereas, um, and not all that different from three, six and nine. So basically that six month time point is not adding a whole lot in terms of your predictive value. Uh, yeah. next, next slide. 
And so what this is looking at now is um, in the top um, set of, um, of graphs, we're looking at the box plot of the AUC, um, looking at using different data sets. So we have the islet autoantibody information, we have the genetic risk score, the GRS, we have met, um, that's metabolomics data, and then we have HLA type alone. Um, and you know, keeping in mind that HLA is a component of GRS. Um, so if you are looking at only one single um, data set, the best AUC comes from islet autoantibody alone. Um, in the next group, if you look at combinations of data sets, you can see that the best prediction comes from a combination of islet autoantibody and the genetic risk score. Um, and then when we do three data sets, um, addition of HLA and genetic risk score or metabolomics and genetic risk score, um, plus HLA are pretty similar in terms of prediction. Um, and then finally, if you use all four data sets. Um, so, and then in the bottom set of panels, what we're looking at is if you restrict um, the, um, if you restrict to only um, cases where you have a low false positive rate, so false positive rate under 5%, um, your true positive rate, how is that impacted by using the different sets of data? So when you restrict to a low false positive rate, so you're trying not to pick up um, kids who are not truly um, going to progress, now the metabolomics um, look more important. So basically, um, if you look at the single, um, the single data sets, pretty similar pattern to what we saw when we did the whole, um, the whole spectrum AUC. Um, but now when we look at the combinations, the islet autoantibody plus metabolomics um, performs best. And, um, and then finally in the three, metabolomics is in um, the, the combination of three data sets that works, uh, that gives the best true positive rate. Um, and then all four data sets is really not that much different. Um, but one thing to point out is if you look across the board, the best true positive rates are still in the 30s, right? So it's a not a, a super high, um, true positive rates. Next slide. So just to kind of summarize here, oops, and just in time. Um, so the prediction is relatively high in terms of the um, area under the curve of 0.82 with our, um, our best prediction. Um, but our, our true positive rate was not high enough for practical use um, at a low false positive rate. Um, validation studies would be needed so we can further refine. Um, the other thing we have is that the optimal screening age was nine months where we now can incorporate that islet autoantibody data. Um, and it does increase significantly if you add the three month data point um, for additional um, information. And then finally, um, feature importance for metabolomics can help in identifying important pathways. We kind of highlighted some of those that, that pop out in multiple studies um, and in this group of kids who progress by six years of age. And uh, finally, the feature importance um, tells you that the genetic risk score in HLA um, might have partially duplicative information, which we know since the GRS includes HLA plus um, other SNPs. And with that, uh, we'd welcome further questions. Yeah, that's great. I mean, this is just great. It really, it's, I mean, you said it took five years, right? To, to right. kind of wade through this, these masses <laughs> massive data sets, but really uh, you were able to pull out some, some very valuable pieces of information. 
Um, and I'm going to open up to questions. I wondered if I have three questions. One is, you know, how much more value um, do you both think that MLAI can add to the T1D clinical study landscape? You know, is it, in terms of going back over like even papers and studies and pulling out new insights. I mean, do you feel like there's a lot more to go? Um, you know, uh, have you feel like you've captured a lot of it? What's your thought? You want to take that first? Bruce? I can take that first. Um, so one of the, I mean, I think there's room for um, for going back. I mean, we have these these studies like Daisy, Baby Diab, Dip, Dipus, um, that have been going on for for decades. So a, a deeper data set in terms of length of time, but perhaps not as robust data collection as in Teddy. Um, and then you have huge amounts of data from TrialNet. So I think. There is, um, there's a lot of data there that has not um, yet been looked at or is just starting to be looked at using some of these methods. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with a, um, a collaborative called the Tie-Dye Collaborative. So that's Dip, Dipus, Daisy, Baby Diab, and Do It. And um, combining our, harmonizing our data and then using AI or machine learning to pull out things like antibody patterns or, um, trajectories where you combine age of an antibody pattern and um, the constellation antibody pattern. And I think there's some interesting insights that you can come out with that. And then what's really exciting is when we get more uh, richer genetic data, can we overlay that um, with things like antibody pattern? And can we start to discover um, not just overall risk genes for type one, but risk genes for, for specific pathways? Um, and you know, to some degree, you can do that by looking at just one one feature stream, but um, but I think combining things is really um, interesting to see if there's, uh, particularly if we're trying to get to this customized um, individualized medicine where we're trying to target interventions to people with specific um, pathogenic pathways. Yeah, I mean, and it makes perfect sense, right? If you have this, if you get this layered approach growing, you going, you'll have uh, much more informative data and sort of able to, you'll be able to dissect the prodrome and then sort of attack it clinically, personally. And I mean, people say, oh, well, you know, you don't wanna sort of cut things up into endotypes, but I mean, that's exactly what the breast cancer field did, didn't they? Mm -hmm. They had, you know, it was just like one size fits all and now it's very um, customized, which, you know, could be really a win for the type one diabetes community too, if you could sort of cut off progression at certain time points. Um, mm -hmm. I wondered, you know, um, What's the timeline, just sort of like ballpark timeline for pinning down the appearance of autoantibodies and those at risk and getting these diagnostics into the newborn nursery or like at the nine month, right? Pediatric well child checkups. And what are some of the roadblocks? Okay, so, so right now in the US um, and Europe, there's um, some momentum behind designing screening programs. And particularly as we have, our first intervention, hopefully coming online later this year, um, that becomes even more um, a more convincing um, strategy. Yes. Um, and so Germany has looked at you know one time point now two, um, looking at islet autoantibodies. We are looking at islet autoantibodies. Um, Virginia is looking at first screen by genetic risk score and then following up with islet autoantibodies. Um, South Dakota has an interesting, I think, um, combination where they're doing newborn screen for genetic risk score and islet autoantibodies in all children. So I think that's going to be helpful because one of the things is that, um, and then cascade. So, um, 
Washington State is doing uh, genetic risk score followed by allied autoantibodies. So I think those different studies are going to be helpful. And hopefully in the next three to five years, more information in terms of how do we do in terms of ability to identify kids. Um, we know that, you know, Teddy Daisy, et cetera, that we're, we deliberately were uh, selecting high-risk kids to begin with and then looking at them. But we know that that group does not represent all um, new onset. And so these, these sure. screening studies are going to be really important. Um, so I'm hoping that once teplizumab hopefully gets approved, that that will light a fire under some of the, the foot dragging around, like, why are you screening for something you can't do anything about so I think in the next five years, we're gonna see changes. I don't know if we'll be able to go universal. One of the big things we need is um, American Academy of Pediatrics, Bright Futures to get on board and say, this is a worthwhile, we should be doing this. Yeah. So it gets yeah. paid for. I mean, even, even pushing off diagnosis, especially at the young age by months to a, a, a year or so is significant. And also just identifying those, you know, uh, that are risky, they can be monitored more closely and gain mm -hmm. more information from that particular patient. Yeah. There's three advantages. One is, um, can you prevent somebody from presenting in DKA? And we know that our studies can do that by monitoring. Right. The second is, um, can you, and we also know from uh, analysis that we've done that that has and we and others have shown that DKA at diagnosis has impact on long-term A1C trajectory, which has impact on long-term complications, which has real uh, sort of financial benefit in terms of our healthcare system as a whole, Absolutely. in addition to the benefit to the people who aren't having their kids in the ICU. Um, and the second is the potential to intervene and potentially over the coming years, either slow or completely stop um, progression. And then the third- Almost like in a remission status. Yes. And sort of like we do for other autoimmune diseases that we try to keep things as quiet as possible for as long as possible. Yes. And then the, the final is I think, um, you know, giving families tools so that, so there's the advantage of not being in DK, but even so I think for people to know that this process is coming and that insulin is in there in their future is less stressful than one day you're in the ER, you find out your kid needs um, insulin for the lifetime. And it doesn't matter what you had planned for this week. This is now what you are doing is figuring out how to how manage this crisis. And so I think you know, there's, there's multiple layers at which um, it's a benefit to the community. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I know you're in the clinic also, so that um, that's a great perspective at uh, sort of to hear. Um, I guess my last question is, you know, what is your thoughts about sort of this whole, um, you know, there's a non-coding genomic um, element to the progression or even the, you know, the existence of type one diabetes. How might ML and AI be used to address that or, to, you know, kind of get at that? Do you want to try that one, Bobby Joe? I mean, that's kind of, a lot of what we've done is, focus on identified SNPs, right? So that would be, I think harder because it's a Maybe Kendra, she oh. has some questions too. Okay. Yes, Kendra, please join us. Unmute, I'm unmuting myself. Hi guys. Hi. Hi. Um, <laughs> I have a couple of questions. Um, and while I was typing that, I wasn't listening to your question, Monica, so I'm sorry. Oh, I just was saying, you know, how can, can ML and AI, is there potential for it to further di dive into the, the non-coding genes that maybe in, uh, have been implicated in type 1 diabetes? 
I, I don't think I can answer that question as well. Need Steve Rich on the call. <laughs> yeah. I, I know we, we've no. talked about um, using Bobby Joe's um, approaches to whole genome sequencing data and that there is a computational limit to how many things you can toss in the pot and um, and have and get to an outcome. Also, we're limited by number of people and number of data elements. Okay, to be continued on that one. But so yeah, what yeah. did, Kendra, what did you want to offer? And well, congratulations, you were on the study as well. And Bobby Joe and Briggs, really nice. Um, and my two questions, um, the first one is to Briggs. I think you did a nice job um, trying to uh, tell us about what kind of pathways and the types of metabolites that were used in prediction. And I was curious, are how similar are those, or is there ones in particular that are uh, similar to what we see in IA, what you guys found in IA with your previous papers? Yes, yeah, so the IA pathways that, um, that seem to pop out are, um, so there's the branch chain amino acids, um, the uh, ascorbic acid, came out in our IA endpoint um, and also in the general um, Teddy longitudinal metabolomics. Um, the, as I mentioned, like the sugar um, kind of pathways didn't come out in the Teddy analysis because they were looking at IA as an endpoint, but they did come out in our IA progression to T1D. So I think that's a whole other, you know, I mean, there's kind of it's a, it's a continuum, but it is interesting to look at what happens early before IA, what happens later between IA and, and diagnosis. Um, so, um, and most of the other pathways that got pulled out were actually um, pulled out from the, um, in the endpoint of IA. So like the pentose um, phosphate pathway, which I didn't mention, but um, is also pulled out from multiple studies, um, GABA, those all came up with IA outcome. Um, and really the biggest thing that came out in our panel of, of outcome to um, T1D was sugar pathways. So um, maybe less exciting from immunological point of view. Well, no, and I, I, think, I think all of it plays out together. And like you said, there's two different pathways. And um, how do you, I guess, in, in a broader, take this predictive type of modeling and move it into a causative? in a causative plane, you know, how do we start to really understand it mechanistically or use this information that we get for prediction and use it um, in, in more mechanistic studies? That's such a good question. It is a good question and therefore <laughs> does not have an easy answer. Um, I mean, I think, you know, one thing um, that is, so our approach thus far has been, um, I mean, I think with Teddy, we'd see this a lot. Do we look at an individual food group or do we look at a food group pattern? Do we look at an individual metabolite or do we look, look like a, at a pathway? Um, and there's kind of benefit to both angles. Um, I think validation would be great. I mean, we have now a set of pathways um, that are of interest and we're starting to have all these kids from the general population screening. What if we started um, looking at you know, some of these ensembles in, um, in kids and, and look to see like, what does that say about time to, although most of those kids are coming in at island autoantibody positivity. So maybe that's not the greatest, um, situation. It is a little hard. Like, um, if we took three month olds and we screened them for genetic risk score, but we also, um, looked at a panel of metabolites. I mean, I, one of the things that Bobby Joe mentioned was that 
the true positive rate was not that high. So it's of limited use to, to screen a population. Um, how do you improve that body, Joe? Do you think like if you go back with another data set and you refine to a smaller number of, of metabolites or you, you limit yourself to specific pathways, would that help? It might, I mean, so to Kendra's question about causal modeling, that takes massive amounts of data to do it computationally. And part of the issue, um, even this paper and all the other ones, right? It's only 73 of our kids have progressed by that age. So that's a, a small population. So you have to do those validation studies and maybe tweak. So there's lots of ways to do it. It's all just time and money, right? So right now we're just saying how well are we doing globally, but you can modify your optimization metric to focus on just true positive at, if you have a false positive rate that you're most interested, if I could hit this, then it would be clinically useful. And that's really what we should be optimizing for, not this general overall area under the curve. We should only be optimizing to that specific goal or target. So that would be one thing we could do. We might find more useful predictors doing that. It's probably something we should do hmm. moving forward. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and I kind of wonder, um, you know, it depends on what we're doing with the information. So if the information is having us focus on these children more closely and have them come back for a follow-up, visit another lab draw, further um, measurement of antibodies, that's pretty low risk. And so you might tolerate a pretty high false positive rate, right? But whereas if we're selecting people to put into a, an intervention study, that's going to be different. So that's the other piece, I think. But you still have to pick. So if like you wanted to get all your T1D kids in the paper we just presented, right? And we had like you know, 500 and some negatives and 70-ish positives, you would have to then move forward almost like 400 of your negatives to make sure you got all your positives. So is that too many? Maybe not, but I think so, right? So I still think you need to pick it. You need to pick what is reasonable, right? So you're like, sure, I'd be willing to do a one-to-one, -one, right? If only half the kids that I move forward actually truly do progress, I'm, I'm happy with that because the cost is low to, to screen the other half that will be negative. And, um, but machine learning, that's always a challenge, right? You got to be optimizing to the right thing. And the field is in general, when people just data scientists come in, the first thing we optimize to is AUC. But we, you know, now I think we've learned that maybe through practice that it's not that simple. And maybe Where we need this, to get more focused. Is there a paradigm? Um, is there a paradigm for this in other disease states that uh, could be useful to the type one diabetes research focus? a good question. The can, you know, certain types of cancer research or. Yeah, there, you know what, I, I'm sorry to say, I don't, I'm not familiar with. Um, is anybody else doing this? I mean, you know, is anybody else sort of I, mining I for these types? They're starting to open up causal um, mechanistic uh, methods in cancer. I am seeing a lot more of that and I'm seeing a lot more um, a priori, like they're, they're really targeting one metabolite in particular. Mm. And they're, they're looking at how it, it's related to the immune system. And another area that I've seen it in is um, aging. Yeah. So it's 
specific metabolites, and they've done some clinical trials in that that um, area in aging, and you know, and they're working on developing supplements that in, in increase your those metabolites, and and also seeing very good results in their interventions. So I do believe there is some out there. I just see, I just from all the work I've looked at, it, it just seems like it's really limited in. Um, it's limited to number one prediction. And I think that both Bobby Joe and Briggs have done a lot of work in this area um, specifically because they have access to great data sets that have that. Mm-hmm. But um, the other thing is uh, I, I think it's going to be hard to validate because of that, because, you know, we do have really granular measures um, over time where that's hard to capture in other studies. So, uh, you know, it's all it comes down to money really in developing those big studies. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I mean, I think. Do you hear that, NIH? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry if I cut you off. Oh, saying? no, I was just going to say, I think also it'd be interesting. So we're doing this as a single cross sectional, but I think would also, well, no, that's not true. We had multiple, um, but I think it'd be interesting to see if you had a two step selection. So first you select people on genetic risk score, and now you look at the other features. Um, would that work better? So if we went to a screening model like the um, the South Dakota Stanford Health Group is doing for general population, where you first do um, first do genetic screening and then you look at everybody at um, at age five, I think it is for antibodies, we would be able to potentially do you know that early screening and get some extra data, um, extra blood, look at some metabolites, maybe and get a sense of how well. Um, sort of selecting a population helps you refine who you're going to, does that improve your, your, um, true positive, false positive? Um, it seems like, I mean, it just seems like just from a lame person's, you know, view, uh, it seems like it would. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the one place where we could get more data because Kendra's right. I mean, the Teddy study is not going to be duplicated the, the way that, I mean, the, the amount of time effort I can't believe what these families have done in terms of um, samples that they've um, that they've provided. It's it's pretty massive. So, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think once people are in it at, with the diagnosis, they they're quite um, hopeful and desperate for you know a change in the way that the disease has to be monitored and and treated and you know like you know in their wishes of wish they have a the idea for a cure, but it is, um, this is, this is, I think a really sort of a, a great new paper, you know, you're, you're diving back into your previous, uh, work and kind of like bringing it together. And I think it's really setting the stage for just more of, um, more inquiry and, and the great, um, the great way the collaboration was put together. I mean, it was just really exemplary on many fronts. So thank you um, all for, you know, getting this work out there and published and um, hoping that you'll, you know, have uh, more insight soon. Thank you. Thanks thank so you. much for sharing. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye.